everyone. Welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. I am Captain Nick James, your MEC Chairman. And joining me today is our MSP Captain Rep and Chairman of Council 129, Dan Krieger. We'll be talking to Dan a little bit later in the episode about the Section 19 process, how to properly prepare for it, and what does that really mean for the pilot and how to avoid Section 19. As always, at the end of today's podcast, we will be answering a pilot question from the front line. Remember, if you have a question for an idea or topic for the show, please email edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. So what's new at Endeavor as we start 2021? Well, something that I usually don't address is the rumor mill, because as you know, in aviation, we tend to get a lot of those rumors. But uh, one rumor that uh, actually has some substance to it uh, is our CEO, Jim Graham, has been talking in recurrent ground schools about the possibility of Endeavor receiving e-jets in the future. Now, this is something that has been talked about for several years at our property, going back probably at least four to five years. There's been a push uh, amongst the Endeavor leadership to try to get the e-jet on our property. That way, when Delta has a need, whether it's on the you know, Embraer product or the CRJ product, they will be able to meet the, uh, the call of Delta. You know, however, transferring um, those aircraft onto our certificate is not an inexpensive proposition. Um, between spooling up maintenance programs, training programs, getting pilots into the right positions, and, and even getting the operating certificates uh, up and running, it is a, a significantly expensive process. I believe about two or three years ago, uh, when we were talking with Bill Lynch, uh, who was originally trying to bring the E-Jets uh, to Endeavor, the price tag to transfer them was somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million. So it is a, a costly proposition. And at a time when Delta has to be very, very conscientious about any type of capital expenditure, as they are burning about 20 to $30 million a day in their uh, liquid cash, it, it does present a significant obstacle to bring an eJet product here anytime in the near future. However, the CRJ product, now that it is no longer being made, we will need a replacement aircraft at some point in the future, and the E-Jet product may be that replacement aircraft. So the question becomes, are E-Jets good for Endeavor? Should we be excited uh, to bring a new plane on our property? And the answer really is, that depends. And it depends because we're not sure if they're going to be protected, those E-Jets, under any type of fleet guarantee. Now, this is something that I've talked about in, in previous podcasts, but it is something that is, is very, very important to the long-term stability for your jobs here at Endeavor. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in talking about what that fleet guarantee is. In LOA 91, we increased the fleet guarantee from 81 dual-class aircraft uh, to 109 dual-class aircraft and extended the expiration of those aircraft through 2026. However, prior to the pandemic, we were slated to operate somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 to 185 single and dual class CRJ airplanes. With the announcement that we're going to be taking on an additional 10 CRJ 200s, if we get to the pre-COVID pandemic planned levels and we have added in those additional 10 aircraft, we're looking at somewhere over 190 airplanes with only 109 of those aircraft being protected. In other words, that means if 
Delta wanted to make the decision to move aircraft to a different operator or a startup operator, they would be able to move a very, very significant portion of our airplanes and therefore our pilots and our jobs. And so this is something that we've always tried to champion inside negotiations is a more robust and comprehensive fleet plan because a fleet plan or a fleet guarantee, excuse me, will protect your future and will protect your job. The challenge to a fleet guarantee is that it, it can be very intrusive to the company. In other words, it's going to limit options. You know, for instance, if we were to get a 10-year fleet guarantee, and we did see one at uh, Envoy several years ago, and we were to be able to capture all 190 aircraft inside that fleet guarantee, we would absolutely have those airplanes parked at Endeavor for that length of time, which is great news for us, but it does limit options for Delta and for their network. As we know, uh, management has typically in the past used the lack of fleet guarantees to shuffle flying to more inexpensive carriers. We refer to that as whipsawing, but it has been a tactic that has been utilized to garner concessions out of pilot groups. That's why having something in writing that protects against that is vitally important. Absent any type of fleet guarantee, what we really should be focused on is also career security. Now, career security could be garnered through guaranteed and contractual career progression. This is another reason why the Progression for All campaign exists and why we continue to champion that as a solution to some of the instability that we may face in the not-too-distant future. Our vision for career security would be as follows. If you are a pilot at Endeavor and some aircraft were shifted to a competitor. As long as you were at one point in time on the seniority list at Endeavor, you would have recovery rights to go to Delta. And why, do, why is that important? Well, if you've been here for five or six years and you've already upgraded to captain and all of a sudden your job disappears because we don't have a fleet guarantee and you have to move to another carrier, resetting your longevity and resetting your pay, you will absolutely take a monetary hit. And we want to make sure that if you have to take a short-term hit, that you have guaranteed long-term recovery rights. It's the same philosophy that we used in negotiations early during the pandemic when the company asked us for 27% pay cuts to minimum guarantee. We said we absolutely can take a short-term hit, but we want to be guaranteed long-term recovery. That's the essence of a good deal. Let's solve your problem today, and the downside effects to solving your problem will recoup later with career progression. So eJets could be a good thing if we could also negotiate with Delta and Endeavor, and they've been really unwilling to do that. Again, a more comprehensive and robust fleet guarantee that really solidifies and secures your jobs here at Endeavor. It doesn't really help to have a great industry-leading contract if we can't also make sure that the jobs that are attached to that contract are safe. So we either have to do that through a fleet guarantee or through career security via the career progression medium. Let's shift gears for the moment and let's bring Dan Krieger onto the show to talk about Section 19s. Dan, welcome. Good morning, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me join today. My name's Dan Krieger. I am the LEC captain rep in uh, Minneapolis. Been serving in that role for about close to nine years. Uh, I've had various uh, roles in the MEC, including uh, vice chairman, secretary, treasurer. I've been the uh, first officer rep in Minneapolis, the secretary treasurer in Minneapolis. Uh, a lot of roles, um, and they've all been uh, really good. Uh, captain rep uh, position is probably my most rewarding. 
So Dan, with all that experience and most of it being as a representative on the LEC, you have had the, I guess, maybe we call it the unfortunate pleasure of having to represent a lot of our pilots in Section 19s. And that's why we we brought you into the show today because of, of that knowledge and experience. So why don't you kind of talk briefly about what a Section 19 is and what is its goal? When it comes to a Section 19, we're talking about Section 19 in the contract, which uh, gives you protections against uh, disciplines and and uh, whatnot. And really, um, the Section 19 process is not, necess- not necessarily a punitive um, process. It's more of an investigative uh, process. Kind of exploratory. Absolutely. So they, you know, they, there's always two sides to the coin and they always get one perspective versus two. And quite honestly, the section 19s are to give both sides of the perspective. So it's to give the pilot an opportunity to kind of go in there and tell management what they have, their perspectives are what they have seen. Their side of the story. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. So when a Section 19 notice is issued, Dan, what is kind of the first step in the ALPA process or the MEC's process to start preparing the pilot for that Section 19? So first and foremost, I mean, usually we do some coordination with uh, all of our chief pilots to try to get this somewhat coordinated. Um, some chief pilots are better than others in coordination with their reps. Um, I happen to have a really good coordination with mine to where we talk about when it's convenient for uh, them, when it's convenient for us. We work around whatever problems there are, and then we put it on the books. Um, and when I say put it on the books, they send a Section 19 uh, meeting out or a notice out to the pilot, which has to be 72 hours prior to that, but they try to get it out there a little sooner rather than later. It's kind of a fine window that you're at because if you if you send it too far in advance, pilots get really apprehensive about it. So they want to keep it somewhat uh, close to that 72 hours. Uh, but normally pilots know that it's coming um, before it arrives. So, um, which is not always the case, but does that's how they try to do it. Yeah, and that's, I think... Uh plausible reaction from the vast majority of us. Yeah, completely understandable. So, you know, I guess one point that I'll make uh, with Section 19s is if they do have to remove a pilot from flying, they are going to pay protect that pilot uh, for the flying that is missed as a result of that Section 19. Or if a pilot has to come in on their day off, the contract does allow a mid-day to be applied to that meeting. Um, So it it is important to know that at least there will not be um, a punitive side to it if there is this exploratory meeting. But so, Dan, when you get a section 19 notice, you know, you're going to reach out to the pilot, you're going to call them and you're going to start talking to them. And kind of, can you tell the pilots what to expect through that kind of process? So the first thing that happens is I am usually in front of the section 19 meeting. Um, so I know about it prior to the notice going out. So what I try to do personally is I try to call them before that, um, before that section 19 um, letter comes to them so that they, they're prepared for it and when they, they can read it and they can be informed about it so they have that less element of worrying about it. Um, and then once, you know, once, once they receive it, it's, it's less threatening. That's, that's what I try to do. I try to reach out to them, tell them not to worry about it, and which is hard to do, especially when somebody has something like this uh, come in because, like I said, their first reaction is, is my job on the line, uh, which n- nine out of ten times is not the case. No, that's, that's very true. So, you know, we talk about is my job on the line. Does a Section 19 mean automatic discipline? Absolutely not. So a lot of times, like we were talking about before, um, it's it's an, an investigatory um, 
methodology that uh, they're just finding the other side of the story. Um, and a lot of times- Like, like a fact-finding mission. Absolutely. That's that's how that's honestly how the chief pilots describe it, um, that they want to know both sides because they've already got one perspective. They want to find out what the other perspective is. Uh, and it's very informative for them, which usually leads them down the road, quite honestly, where uh, most, I'd say the vast majority of time, there isn't any disciplinary. Sure. And when there is discipline issued, what kind of, what are, what are the different levels of discipline or what kind of different um, disciplinary notes could we end up seeing being issued from the companies? We have a number of different uh you know, letters of warning that we have. We have level ones, level twos. We have last chance agreements. Um, we have coaching reports. So, I mean, there's a wide variety of different types of discipline. Um, I haven't seen, you know, people can get suspended. I have not seen that in quite a while. Yeah, we have not. They, they tend to not use that as a tool, even though they have it in their toolbox. They have not. I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think I think that's probably largely measured by productivity is my guess. <laughs> they they want to make sure that if they have them, they want them to be productive. So one of the things that our attorneys um, do in terms of these last chance agreements, and, and Rob Plunkett has been very, very good about that, is they try to narrowly construe the last chance agreements. And I think that's important for the pilot to understand that if you have an infraction or an offense that ends up placing you on a last chance agreement, um, it, what they really look to do or what we look to do as an association is to limit the scope of the letter to the infraction only. So that if there is an other oops that happens, um, maybe there was a, a late sick call or something along those lines, something that was not pertinent to the issuance of that last chance agreement, it doesn't necessarily mean that in the next 18 or 24 months, if you have a little mistake, you're going to get fired for every little minute detail. That's that's not the case of last chance agreements. Um, so we do try to work real hard with that. But yeah, that kind of, you know, that explains, Dan, uh, kind of some of the notices, disciplinary letters that could end up in pilot's files. Now, once that that letter has expired, is it taken out of the pilot's file? Well, from a theoretical standpoint, yes. Okay. It uh, definitely is out of their personal file, uh, but that does not mean that the company doesn't have a record of that. Um, and I say that, um, like I said, it's not an official record. How about that? That's probably the best way I can describe that. Sure. And if the company does decide to issue discipline and the and the pilot still completely disagrees based upon circumstances or facts of the case, do they have any recourse? Well, they can absolutely grieve it. I mean, they can put in a pilot issue form and, and have the grievance process get followed through, which has happened um, somewhat recently, mm -hmm. uh, a few times actually. Mm -hmm. And um, they go through the process, um, you know, they, they dispute it. And we go through that process where it can go through arbitration and, and we can get a ruling one side or the other. Yeah, sometimes what we see is after the grievance is filed, you know, we'll talk about uh, you know these Section 19 notices that we disagree with as far as the the punitive side is concerned, and sometimes we come up with a lesser degree of punishment that is acceptable acceptable to both the pilot and the company, and then the other times we have to take it all the way to to arbitration. Um, we I think the one that you're talking about most recently is we had to file a grievance on a Section 19, and the entire letter was removed before we even got to arbitration, right. which was which was an excellent result. So, you know, again, even if discipline is uh, issued by the company, that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a, another uh, relief valve for a lack of a better term there. So Dan, you talked, you know, real early in this this section 19 dialogue about a pilot getting a hold of a pilot soon, very soon after that section 19 notice is issued because they you don't want that apprehension to build. And I'm assuming that's because 
performance inside the actual Section 19 meeting is a key component as to whether or not the pilot comes across as believable, which then also can somewhat dictate whether discipline is is issued or not. Um, you know, I've I've heard from the managerial side that if a if an individual isn't believable it usually tends to mean that discipline is going to be issued. So coming into a Section 19 meeting relaxed and comfortable as you can be in that environment, and I understand that nobody's going to be completely relaxed, is an important component. So what do you do or what do the other reps do to try to make sure that they're relaxed? That's absolutely true, Nick. Um, the big thing that I, I, I preface when we go in there is um, don't lie, right? That's, that's a big thing. Um, I also uh, I try to uh, get the full story. Right. Um, a lot of times people uh, that have Section 19s are kind of selective with their memory. And um, I want to know the entire history. I want to know uh, if there are previous, you know, things that are in their file, uh, because I don't like getting surprised at Section 19s, which happens more frequently than it really should. And um, I want to know the history between that individual and, and, and the company. So uh, to begin begin the process, like I said, uh, not lying is key. Knowing the history of the, uh, the the pilot and the company is very important. What I try to tell uh, the pilots is is first, what exactly does the company want to hear, right? What are you going to tell them? Um, tell the truth, right? Um, yeah, what tell, transpired? Tell, tell your true story. Absolutely, and. And for the most part, they want to hear you be accountable for what it is that transpired. And that's no that's no different than an interview. I mean, we, we talk about interview prep a lot. You know, if you make a mistake, just own your mistake, be accountable for your mistake, talk about what you learned from your mistake and move on. That is the exact same thing that they're wanting to see here. Absolutely. Accountability is, is really important to them. Take ownership of what transpired. So in terms of Section 19s, you know, there's there tends to be, um, you know, the one off issues that we see very rarely. Um, you know, issues that don't necessarily pop up very often. But then there are Section 19s that we seem to see the same offense happening time and time again. So, you know, from your perspective, Dan, what are some of the issues that pilots tend to get trapped in or trap themselves in? And we see a lot of uh, repeat customers. Well, the biggest the biggest one, to be perfectly honest, is going to be uh, just your NFAs and your sick calls. Uh, those are the biggest ones that I see. Uh, sick calls really aren't a big deal. When you're sick, you're sick. I get it. I understand that. But uh, when you are constantly, and dare I say, on the radar, I promise you that the company is monitoring that. When you're always dancing on that on that list, right on that that borderline, uh, the company they're watching, right. And so if you you're only one tragedy away from something being put in your file, right. Uh, when you call in sick and you dance on that line, and then all of a sudden something really does happen. Right with the family or whatnot, and you're put in a pinch. Well, now you're gonna now you're gonna take your medicine. That's that's what happens. Yeah, and I think we should probably clarify that you know an NFA, which is not available for assignment, that's really just a crew track code that crew scheduling puts in there. And you know, unfortunately, I've experienced this personally, so I can talk about this. I mean, I, I do think that scheduling sometimes likes to throw that code out there um, and throw that kind of threat out there to entice a pilot to maybe do something that they aren't necessarily obligated to do. So I think it's really important that people understand that the NFA code, just like what you said, that's how crew scheduling deals with virtually everything. Yes. Right. And and that's how that's how their management tells them to mm -hmm. deal with that because then it puts it on the chief pilot's shoulders 
And then they have to do a little investi uh, investigation to find out what, what's transpired. Yeah. So that's why they do that. So they code it initially as an NFA, and then usually it turns into something else. So one of the things that we need, that the pilot group definitely needs to be aware of, especially the reserve pilots, are the fact that you do need to commute in and be available to take an assignment on while on reserve duty. If you delay your arrival into your domicile or if you leave early, uh, whether the company actually calls you or not is irrelevant. You do need to be around available to take that assignment. If you, Dan, as you talk about, kind of get on the radar and they happen to take a look at travel records, which they can they can do. And will do. And will do. And they find that you're um, pushing the boundaries or pushing the limits. Uh, even if you did not miss an assignment, that could still end up in a Section 19 and a missed trip. So please keep in mind that when you are scheduled to work, you do need to be at work or be available to work per the terms of the contract. And I think it's really important also to make sure that if you're not going to get to work, right, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. then you need to take some accountability for that. Mm -hmm. Talk to your chief pilot and let them know wh why it is. They will have more respect for you, and I know that only goes so far, but it could alleviate uh, future things if you're just honest with them and say, hey, man, this is what happened. Um, and, and they appreciate that more than you can imagine. Yeah, and beyond just the reserve pile, for the line holders too, and this is something that we get a lot of questions on consistently, even though we've communicated it uh, you know, extensively, if you are going to deviate from a front-end deadhead, you need to have crew scheduling's permission. We do not have a contractual right as of yet for front-end deadhead deviations. So if you are going to do that, please make sure that you coordinate with crew scheduling. And if crew scheduling for any reason says, you know what, this time we are not able to do it, you have to follow your schedule as it has uh, been issued to you or awarded to you. So please remember that. That's happened quite a few times. And, and it doesn't happen really frequently, but it probably pops up every six months. There's probably at least one person that uh, that does that. And they get stuck someplace yep. and they didn't coordinate with crew scheduling, which is the most important thing that you can do. Um, you know, you're late for work. The most important thing you can do is call them, call your chief pilot, like make sure you know what your resources are. Well, Dan, I think that gives the pilots some great information. I appreciate you coming in and, and sharing your vast wealth of knowledge and experience with Section 19s. Hopefully, this gives the listener some insights uh, if you do find yourself in a meeting as to what to expect. And, and understand that just because a notice is issued, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be terminated. In fact, it really doesn't mean you're going to be terminated unless the offense is completely egregious. Um, so, but Dan, thank you for coming to the show. We always appreciate you. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. So as always in every episode, we take a question from the front line. If you have a question or a topic for the show, please email edvonair at alpha.org. That's edvonair at alpha.org. If we do select your topic for the show or question, we will send you a gift from the MEC. This week's question was actually sent anonymously, so we will not be able to send a gift out, but uh, we're gonna answer the question anyway. And the question is, Delta recently was able to achieve positive space inside um, LOA 2004. And per the terms of LOA 91F, we have a Me Too clause 
that should allow us to be afforded the same benefits. Are we going to see that? Um, well, I sent out a chairman's letter that really covered this in, in great detail, but I'll give the listeners a, a little bit more of some updated information. Yes, we do believe that we should be afforded the same rights as given to Delta, and that would be first flight positive space to and from. The company, after a little more than a two-week evaluation disagreed with our position, so we immediately filed a grievance on that, and we are looking to move that forward through the process of expedited arbitration. So instead of hearing it uh, late this year or maybe even into next year, we're hoping to have that case heard in the next uh, maybe two or three months, and we will certainly keep the pilot group apprised of, of any progress. We have emphasized on several occasions we'll continue to do so with the company that our pilots are having a difficult time commuting. When you think about the, the CCAPs that are going to be in place through at least March 30th of this year, uh, when you look at the Delta positive space language to and from, and that is also piggybacked onto by the Delta flight attendants, uh, and when you think about the S3A uh, travels, uh, excuse me, the S3A priority, the six passes a year that retirees will get, and the S2 status that all of the Delta participants that um, took part of the early outs and the buyouts will receive through February of 2022. It is going to make uh, commuting very, very challenging and really has. And we understand that that is not an ideal situation for us to be in. And that's why we did choose to try to um, expedite this arbitration. So again, we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we have answers on that. Um, but thank you for the question. As always, thank you for listening to On Air with the Chair. We hope that you uh, fly safe and be safe out there. And we will see you out on the line. Take care, everyone. Send everything to 531, runway 28, clear to land.